This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to NL Interviews. Welcome Arun to News Laundry. Uh, for those of you who are living under a rock, Arun Shori is a scholar, author, former editor and former minister and something which this generation possibly doesn't know. Um, you were, I think, the first to do this kind of investigative journalism almost sting journalism in uh, in your time and um, I think this generation doesn't know that side of you at all. This is Arun's uh, 27th book which gives you some idea of how he works and lives. This one is Two Saints. It's about these, it's an investigation of these two saints, Ramakrishna Pramahans and Ramana Maharishi. Uh, Arun, it was only halfway through your book, well, little, a hundred pages into your book, that I understood what you were doing. In some way, uh, it is an extension of your last book. I think the inquiry started then into the scriptures as a book. Um, the mind, as you've written, is a strange and very powerful organ. It plays with us, or we play with it. In one way, it's a very aggressive book, but it's done so cleverly that it's almost devious. Science doesn't answer all the questions, but in your search for answers, you've examined spiritual answers. Their words, you've examined the saints' actions, their words, and refuted them with scientific facts, their behavior with scientific facts. So science raises questions that give answers to what appear as miracles and divine visions. You've written, as an aside when we say ever so glibly, science does not answer all questions. We should remember neither does religion, nor indeed spiritual discourse. Now, how did you come to this connection of this parallel investigation into the spiritual uh, behavior of these masters and your research with scientific how, scientific facts. How did you think of combining the two? Did you, when you read about their divine visions and their fainting and passing out and all the deprivation that they went through, did that trigger off that why is this happening? Actually, there are two uh, points. <clears throat> One is, and the there was a very, very famous book, probably the most famous in this line, by William James. He was a philosopher, psychologist, a very great thinker towards the close of the 19th century and the early 20th century. In 1902, he gave a set of lectures called the Gifford Lectures. And, and they became a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. It's sort of the classic in this field. At that time, everybody was attacking, you know, it was the day of science, and everybody was uh, talking, uh, was dismissing uh, mystical experiences. So he collected accounts of the mystics that were known around that time in the West, and said, no, no, these are very important uh, experiences, and we should examine them scientifically. Which is what you've done. Uh, no, so, but at that time he needed to convince those persons in the audience and in Western 
academia that take mystic experiences seriously. In our case, it is the opposite. We assume everything to be a mystic ex mystics experience. So I tried in this book to separate the peak mystic experience, for which today even the neuroscientists would say that it is too premature for us to say anything definite. And the peripheral experiences that they had, uh, visions, and Sri Ramakrishna would say, for instance, uh, would have visions of many gods and goddesses. And the characteristic feature was that whichever deity he got interested in at that time, from Hanuman to Radha to, of course, the mother was always with him, Durga, uh, or Jesus, or the prophet. Even Islam, he uh, experimented prophet, yeah, with... Uh, yeah, for three days. Hmm. In three days, he would get that vision. So, uh, then, uh, this out-of-body experiences, um, the followers of Sri Raman Maharishi say that he had, they called them two near-death experiences, but actually medically he was not near death at all, mm. in either instance. So for these peripheral experiences, I thought that I pursued two lines of inquiry. One was to see in, which, in what other circumstances do the same experiences occur? Then maybe there is the same uh, neurological basis for the experience. And the second was, that uh, as in brain surgery, we'll be taught by surgeons, they, when they, as let's say I, I, have an epilept I have epilepsy, and it spreads all over, and I have convulsive movements, and it is intractable in that it is not responding to drugs. Therefore, they'll have to do some surgery. Now, they first try to locate where is the focus of this from which it originates. And the patient is awake while they Yes. So then this. they try to, they open the skull, and then they try to uh, stimulate different points in the brain with an electrode. And the person reports what's happening. And there was a very famous surgeon called Penfield in, uh, in uh, Montreal. And he did this for almost 1,300 surgeries. When he was asking questions, he will, the stenographer will keep taking down what the patient is saying. And many of those experiences were just like the peripheral experiences of our mystics. That he thinks he's now in South Africa, he's talking to his friend, and it seems a completely real experience to him. So, so with Penfield, you've written that that is why one of the far-reaching implications of Penfield's experiments was the premise that almost every emotion, affection, aversion, fear, longing, even pain, and memories, pleasant and unpleasant, could all be triggered artificially. The subject could be made to experience pain without actually hurting his body. The subject could be made to feel elated or depressed without anything actually having happened to her or around her. The subject could be made to remember something that happened to her long ago without her making any effort at all. Which means that whatever we feel is not organic. Every emotion we actually do to ourselves. There are two points. One is that actually speaking, all experience is going to come to us through the brain. 
Yeah, that's where we experience things. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the question is, uh, in, the, in this book, as to whether the trigger and is something special to the mystics, or it can be to anybody else. Like music, uh, Sri Ramakrishna, uh, the bowl singers would be singing something, and he will go into a trance. Now, is there some special degree of attainment which has made him so sensitive to that? Or is it, uh, there's a thing called musicogenic uh, epilepsy, in which any note or a particular tune can trigger epilepsy. Is it similar to that? So that is the question. So what is remarkable in your book is that you have given the highest respects to their teachings. Yes. Uh, to what they say, what they teach in terms of um, attaining some evolution in your spiritual life. And you've given all, and you accord them all the respect for their teachings. However, their visions and their, all the other actions that they do also show that it was basically what mountaineers go through, yes. what anyone with sleep deprivation, food deprivation. Uh, which uh, uh, these pilots go through. in Exactly. Uh, uh, so you've proven that. So you in some way have exposed these saints as having uh, put themselves in a position where they're not understanding what they're actually doing to themselves. Uh, well, uh, yes and no. First is, it is not only their teachings, <clears throat> but their lives, their purity, the solace th that being in their presence gave to millions, uh, their great influence on the course of our country. So for all these things, they, de they deserve our reverence. The question is that many of the other experiences were actually very this-worldly experiences. And they were neither uh, the result of great um, spiritual attainment, they are separate from that, uh, nor do they seem to be what many thought, to be sort of windows to another dimension of reality. See, supposing some, uh, we are devotees of Sri Ramakrishna and he says that he sees the um, mother emerge from the Ganges and walk towards him and tell him something, or Sita or somebody like this. Now we would think that maybe he has a sixth sense or a third eye and he is seeing what we can't see. No doubt that he is in many times uh, sensitive to things to which, which uh, escape us. But maybe there is another explanation for that particular vision. That's the point. So it does not expose them in a sense. It uh, separates the true mystic experience from other experiences. And I feel uh, that even that's the central theme of the book. The, uh, but even person who is probably one of the foremost commentators today, my friend Pratap Bhanu Mehta, missed this point in his review because he thinks that I'm clubbing all experiences and regarding them as the mystic experience. No. So, this, but as you've written in the book that uh, Christians 
have visions of uh, their background, of what yes. their environment is, what their culture is, what their education, what their yes. what what they've grown up with. Yeah. Say, uh, Mary. We will not. Somebody from India, and a guru from India, a saint from India, will not visualize a white person with a long beard in white robes. We will visualize Durga or you know uh, whoever we have grown up with. So then clearly dis disproves the fact that there's a divine grace that visits them is basically their own projection. Yes, it seems to be that way. They, 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 not only that, you can see even among our own uh, persons, uh, let's say the devotees of Sri Ramana will have visions of Sri Ramana, exactly. not of Ramakrishna. And the devotees today of Ramakrishna would not have visions of Raman. So that itself shows uh, the, that our minds are conditioned in some way by the, um, by the bhajans I may be singing, by the contemplation that I may be doing and so on. Uh, I remember your first question to the Dalai Lama. I think you had come to one of his teachings for the first time. Um, and you asked him about the suffering of a child. Why does it happen? He did not know you at that time, I think, or your personal history. And, but I do remember that his answer was so generic that it created a lot of discomfort around people who knew you. It was such an inadequate answer from him uh, about your Adits, your son's sufferings. Uh, he said, well, because of his previous lives. and. In your book, you do in in two lines scoff at this issue of previous lives being brought upon our lives today and that kind of suffering. But you didn't give up on the Dalai Lama. You continued a dialogue with him. How did that evolve? No, uh, I don't remember his response at that time. But uh, at this book release function, he was again asked that by Shantum Seth Seth. about reincarnation. Yes. And he was giving, uh, Shantum wanted to follow it up with another question saying, no, no, this is not it. But I told him not to because and the Dalai Lama was uh, saying the standard answer. See, there is no doubt that what we do, let's say, which is karma, and that includes our thoughts, our and speech and whatever physical things we do, that has an effect. It sort of etches a line in our mind. It reinforces some connections um, between neurons, it weakens other connections and so on. But um, previous life, uh, to take that beyond uh, merely the etchings on the mind and therefore predisposing me to a particular type of action and therefore inviting uh, the consequences. To extend that to previous lives and so on is just an assumption. It is... It's uh, not scientific. It is uh, what an author has called convenient fiction. And, and that's the theme of the book, in the previous book. So here I've just, as I said, probably mentioned... But he does mentioned say, it. as you've mentioned, the Dalai Lama, 
it may be that science will learn from an engagement with spirituality, yes. especially in its interfa interface with wider human issues from ethics to society. But certainly some specific aspects of Buddhist thought, such as its old cosmological theories and its rudimentary physics, will have to be modified in the light, modified in the light of new scientific insights. So there really is no scientific uh, proof of previous lives. But of course, or he, even you know, of reincarnation, and of course, which Hindus also believe in. Yes, but um, and there are others who have said that there is scientific proof by examining uh, individual cases. You know, of a child. Anecdotal, yes. And they say that oh, he remembers his previous birth. So there's a man who's written a book called uh, I think Twenty Cases of Reincarnation and so on, in which they try to examine them in great detail. And the Dalai Lama for some time, I think, also if, if he heard of such an instance, let's say a small girl in Punjab, he will send a group to investigate that. But uh, that is referred to in one book by a man called Sogyal Rinpoche, the Tibetan book of living and dying. But it is not then elaborated and I tried to find out whether such cases had been studied and documented by the Dalai Lama's team as uh, Sogyal Rinpoche had uh, implied. I was told that that's not the case. That was one case which he had examined and it turned out that the girl was completely, she really um, was able to talk about her parents and brother and sister and so on. And the Dalai Lama brought the two families together oh. and said, here is your previous mother, this is you have two mothers. And that is a very nice thing to do. But um, but I don't see any um, evidence in that sense. Um, it is it is a it is of course central <clears throat> even to the institution of the Dalai Lama. Yes, uh, you've mentioned earlier in the book um, about Gandhiji's statements about the Jews um, that they brought it upon themselves by their previous lives. Yes. He also made a statement which you haven't mentioned here, but he also made a statement about when people were dying in the famine. In the earthquake. And the, the earthquake, earthquake yes. yes. And they Bihar died in the earthquake and they said it's, he said it's because of their past sins. And Oh no, it is the present sin of untouchability. Huh. He said it's untouchability and that's why you, he was in the south. <clears throat> and the earthquake took place in Bihar and about 30,000 people died. It was at that time cataclysmic. So when he comes to Bihar, he was in the south campaigning against untouchability. So he said, this has been visited upon you because of the sin of untouchability. And the young students asked him, how do you say that in Bihar we don't have that much untouchability, you were in the south, there they have it, why, does, why did the earthquake not occur there? And uh, what about the Quetta earthquake? There was no untouchability there. And equal amount, equal number of people had died. And at one point... And um, his answer was? And he said, you, you should not ask questions which are on subjects which you don't which, understand. Which I don't have answers to. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so that is dealt with in, in some detail in the previous book. But it but seems it, to be completely you, devoid of compassion. Uh, well, you see, because compassion all resides with God. In the sense, in, uh, for a person who believes in God, they cannot, and who believes that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and compassionate, then 
if anything happens to me, it cannot but be my fault against the will of God. So the victim always gets blamed. That is how I had argued in the previous book that the, a believer in God necessarily lands himself in these quandaries. Earthquake has come, it is not a leaf moves but by his will. All people believe in God, believe in that. Then the earthquake is also because of his will. Then why would he you know, kill 30,000 persons? Well, must be because of something they have done. But they did nothing just now, so it must be previous life. The same thing and to an embarrassing extent in the case of the Jews. The very big people like Martin Buber and the other people, and they were very great philosophers and so on. They wrote to Gandhiji that we have been following your activities from 1908, always asking ourselves whether the, um, whether the methods that you are advocating would be the ones we should adopt. And, uh, but now we are in being persecuted like this in Europe and in Germany. So how and why and what should we do? And actually speaking, if you see, is, it is, uh, he's blaming them. And he tells almost them to go into the gas chambers with a smile on with their a face. smile on his face, on their faces. Uh, almost like it's almost it's, it's, as like it, and he said because you don't have love for Hitler in your heart, <sighs> so it becomes very difficult. But what to, what else could he have? I mean, it was a genuine belief of his, because he believes, from his point of view, everything happening to them is happening by the will of God. So these things are. Uh, uh, this is why I don't believe in this concept of the God being all-powerful, all-compassionate and all-knowing and still allowing all this to And happen. sitting with the register punishing people, people for their past lives. No, no, but even that is inexplicable. Why does he sit with the register? Why does he not prevent me from doing the things for which he will then punish me? They say, oh, he wants to give you free will. Well, some authors will ask, why did he give free will to Hitler to kill six million Jews? After all, being all-knowing, he would have known what giving free will to Hitler will be used for. So, so it uh, doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. Why do you think there's so much aggression in devotion and in devotees? Uh, there are such strong reactions to questioning and inquiry. Even uh, when you went to see uh, a, a someone to get questions, uh, to yes. get your answers, uh, he, he, while waiting for him, uh, the yes. gentleman over there told told you that you are profaning a divine experience. Yes. Now, Hinduism itself in scriptures is questioning, is about debate, never gives you conclusions, actually leaves you with the free will to interpret it any way you like, which is why uh, in in any given religious ceremony, there are so many arguments because everybody wants to do it his or her own way. Uh, what is it that, what do you th think is this kind of aggressive stance of protecting um, things which you know are factually or scientifically difficult to prove? I think it is a great nervousness. We don't want to open up our 
gods, goddesses, or the concepts of gods and goddesses and our scriptures to examination because of an, a deep uh, nervousness that if they are opened up for examination, then all sorts of things will come out. And when uh, persons like Dr. Ambedkar in his book called Riddles in Hinduism, when he points to these inconsistencies, I mean, the caste Hindus got outraged. But those were the very Dharmashastras and others which we regard as divinely inspired. So, and this is all the more so when uh, with these modern gurus and so on, Ramakrishna Paramhans is always being asked questions. He does not mind the question. He um, will give his answer. Raman Maharishi was answering questions. But today, with the, the, uh, this defensive aggressiveness, and that is why I have contrasted it with the open-mindedness and therefore the confidence of the Dalai Lama. He, he takes any question. Any question. And in fact, he says that you should keep a waste paper basket near you. Yeah, I remember in Ashoka Hotel, there was a... Uh, he was giving a set of discourses on, uh, on a meditation text. So the one monk will read out the passage. And he... He will then give an answer. So some passage came about, you know, how universe is created, this, that and the other. He said, oh, these Buddhist cosmological theories, such an embarrassment. <laughs> I mean, no other person will say that. And again, in that book release function, he said, yes, we must revise our ideas about cosmology. That shows confidence. And he has helped uh, one of his friends called Verela, a scientist, set up the, I think it's the Mind and Life Institute. Mm -hmm. in he has, he used to have this conference every year. Every year, he still has that conference every year. Some, it used to be with the great Tibetan meditation masters and the neuroscientists. He brought them together. And that resulted in a whole corpus of literature. And, and investigation experiments with biofeedback. Yes. They did amazing things. Yes, and no, no, they've also Arduin. found uh, which part of the brain you know, gets uh, uh, the, the grey matter increases in density. That means the connections between neurons become more. And the changes that result, take place during uh, meditation, meditation. Yes. And when you reach a different state, yes, they, they tried it on different monks who were. In six weeks, in six weeks, they found that a particular part of the brain, the grey matter, increases in that. So that shows openness. And, and a confidence that in the end and the, and the insights of our ancient uh, seers will be vindicated. And if they are not vindicated, no problem, there will be new insights. So that is, I think, uh, the attitude we should have. The, you've written about um, visions, trance, samadhi, and you document document all that, uh, you document that it could come from sleep deprivation, food deprivation, and in today's time it is explained by medical science. Uh, Oliver Sacks, amazing man, uh, tells us it's a prisoner's theatre you've written. And Freud called it the auto-hypnotic state. So in that sense you've explained how these so-called visions happened scientifically. But it doesn't happen today. I haven't heard of these new age gurus claiming to have had 
these kind of visions? I don't know. I don't know much about these New Age gurus because they are certainly they have absolutely nothing to do with spirituality in my view. And they have absolutely nothing to do with the tradition of Ramakrishna Paramans or Raman Maharishi and so on. Uh, you've written with sensory deprivation. Psychologists point out our minds become hyper vigilant yes. to any cue from the surroundings, as well as to the least flicker within the mind itself. Yes. Isolation and danger compound the effect. The hyper vigilant system within the brain becomes even more at edge, especially so to any cue that may either aid our survival or be a reason to hope, such as with the mountaineers who they find there's a third man who's with them, helping them along. But doesn't that give kind of a false hope? It's, it, it is false. Uh, yes, but at that time it may be very uh, helpful in survival. And they, for instance, in this third man business, the general consensus would be that it is, our, it is my accumulated experience of the past which I now embody in somebody and he then yes. uh, steers me along. But that's a very important device at that moment. Uh, for The mind uh, so survival technique yes. kind of kicks in to create this kind of thing to help you Could be. get over, Could I mean to be. survive yes. basically. Survive, yes. A couple of years ago uh, there was a police officer who uh, decided to become Radha. I don't know. Oh, if you yes, saw I remember. And he dressed in women's clothes and he was devoting his life to Krishna and he was considered a nutter and crazy. Now, the saints that you've written about did similar things. In the case, not, not Raman Maharishi. But, but Sri Ramakrishna Paraman certainly yeah. actually, see, it was a result. He also put on women's clothes. Ah, but it was, I'll tell you why. In his case, he, uh, the, one of the most distinct, uh, distinctive features is. Total immersion, that is a thing that we are taught in meditation, that you must immerse yourself in that. For instance, if it is an emptiness, if it is in the breath, or if it is in some visualization. Or mantra. A mantra, or you just immerse. Or Sri Ramakrishna had this skill that he could immerse himself totally in anything that he was thinking of at that time. For And uh, this case of uh, Radha, or uh, he says, now, I, he wants a vision of Krishna. Then he realizes, I'm not getting that vision. So he, the thought comes to him, that I can only get it by being Radha. I want to see Krishna as Radha saw him. So he starts now med, uh, sort of meditation on Radha. And at that time, he becomes, uh, it, it's not just sitting, and thinking about Radha, but he puts on women's clothes, he puts on jewellery, his gait changes, and actually, it was not, he must have been clean shaven at that time, because um, in a gathering, there's an eyewitness account, in a gathering, Kirtan uh, Horai, women are on one side, men are on one side, and it is the household of a person who was the uh, overseer of the temple, where he is a priest. So that person knows him very well and is a very close devotee. So he asks his wife, okay, who was that uh, lady standing next to you when the prayers are over? And he thinks maybe it is the wife of some other person whom I have not met, some new person has come. 
So the wife tells him, you don't know. Hey, he's the master. So, uh, uh, what do you call, perfect would Sri Ramakrishna become. Now, either you say this account is false, then do not attribute the divine, divine uh, sort of aura to it. Or you say that it is a condition both of the devotee and of the person who's totally immersed himself. And it is that which results in my seeing him as a woman and of his stepping, uh, of his becoming Radha to see Krishna in that form. So it would be, the explanation would be a total immersion, which is a, uh, almost a condition of meditative success, rather than thinking that, no, actually Radha came to him. So that is the distinction. There was this uh, godman who was giving out gold watches, we caught it on yes. camera. What is this, uh, how do people get fooled? No, it is our despair. And that is why I have not taken up cases of individual godmen of today and so on. But it is our despair which leads us to believe. We want to latch on to anything. I myself visited Sai Baba in that particular uh, instance that you are quoting. And we used to go to a Guruji uh, here uh, who, because in of Chattapur. Chattapur, because of uh, Anita's condition. And, uh, and actually, I've described that there's a, uh, there's a chapter there called uh, Sangat and Sensibility uh, and Suggestivity. Yes. And in that, it is actually my own experience. Why did we believe? And how the uh, sort of, uh, how it would have an effect and not have an effect. But he had, I think, I, he called us two, three times and we have this Arya Samaji thinking, jab bulate hai koi from that, you don't say no. So we went and then um, he had two things which I found, techniques, which, which connected with people. One, as you know, he would make you sit and eat from the same thali with strangers, which crosses all Indian sensibility of jhuta ni khana. So you're eating together, so it sort of equalizes you. The second thing, second time he called me alone again. So I went and he said, Ek lota lana. And he blessed the lota. And he said, Rose nane, jab na lete ho, to last wala bharke apne sir par dalna. So I did it a couple of days and I realized what it, what it does. What it does is exactly what you talk about is that you feel blessed. You feel somebody is there with you because all individuals, all human beings at, at the end of it are alone and feel alone. But when somebody gives you this feeling that he's there for you, it gives you a positive aura around yourself. So he caught that. Well, that's a very important function that the guru performs, or these godmen perform, that they, in a sense, are psychiatrists. They have, they've made us talk of the thing. You know, what is happening there is actually explicable, uh, uh, what do you call, comprehensible in terms of ordinary psychology. And our despair, Which is also when, uh, uh, in your book, when he's dying of cancer, it's explained that he took everybody's illnesses. Ah, yes, he himself says that. 
because they used to touch me, therefore so I took, took on their um, ill karma. Now, um, in that sense, Bobby, they believe, in any case, these modern people, uh, they are psychologists to this extent, or psychiatrists, in that they um, uh, give us these reasons, almost, for feeling better at that time. For very, you have put it very well. You know, we feel we are helped, we are blessed. Unhone kal mujhe raat ko roti di, apni thali se khana khilaya. Therefore, it's then my mind which is working in such a way uh, as to affect my body. Mm-hmm. But then, Rather, when I did it, and I finally said, I'm not going to do this because I'm not going to be having this fake blessing just to feel. I'd rather feel the rawness of life than walk around. Another incident, we were invited, some journalists were invited to meet Sri Sri Ravi Shankar and I'm always curious, so as we went and they said, you've got to ask questions. So I'm thinking, what do I ask him, what do I ask him? And then finally I asked him, do you believe in spirits coming back after they've left their body? So he looked at me and he says, hey, what do you think? So I said, I don't know, that's why I'm asking you. So when I left, his followers said, you see what he told you? He said, you must think about this. And I didn't see it as that. I saw it as somebody who just, you know, didn't know how to give an answer and so just was palming it off. But the, the weight the followers were giving to his answer. Wonderful. That's a wonderful example because you see, then we are reading something into exactly. the answer. And very often, uh, these people will talk, not these two saints, they are completely forthright yes. and honest. But the other fellows, they give some ambiguous answer. It's like the, Del- the oracle at Delphi. Yes. It was just a sound. And anybody could read anything out of that sound. So uh, the, the, many of these answers are just um, um, I mean, it's phrases in, you, which you can interpret in any way you like. Um, if questions are raised about any any guru, even those who are arrested, even those who have been in financial trouble, even those who have created environmental damage, if any kind of questions are raised, our culture today has become so virulent that if you even raise a question, <laughs> there is a massive amount of abuse and aggression. And I would include this also with Modi's followers, Narendra Modi's followers, that if you would ask a normal journalistic question that if there have been surgical strikes, can we please see evidence of it or some given official statement, that is considered sacrilege, it's considered blasphemy. So now we are transferring the kind of idol uh, idol worship that we did or we do with gurus and godmen to even politicians. And there's a very good example, a very good phrase that was used by a Hindi journalist, Harishankar Vyas. He writes beautifully. He's written a, after this function of the Dalai Lama releasing this book, he wrote, think, Arun Shori Ka Arth, in which he says that सोशल मीडिया के हिंदू लंगूर जो हैं कि उन्होंने पिछले तीन साल में अरुण शौरी के बारे में क्या-क्या नहीं कहा और वो देखते नहीं वगैरह वो पढ़ते नहीं but that's the quite the right phrase 
these chaps are just a, an army of abusers and I'm sure it is not a very large army. It's there's a large a, army. No, no, no. So, I think there's a deceit in that also because you have software in which one message gets replicated into 10,000 yeah, messages that come. Uh, and with slight alterations. So it seems as if 10,000 people are attacking Madhu and it may be just one fellow who has used an abusive term. And then they are saying, uh, like Trump, no, I am not saying it, many people are saying it. That's, that's Trump's standard answer. And then they, you are dishonest. He said, no, I am not saying it. So many people are saying it. But he has created that army. So I feel that, yes, from the media point of view and from the point of view of national discourse, this is a very bad turn, a very dangerous turn, and everybody should be alert to this. You'll just see, Arun Shuri supports diesel price hike. I, mean, not, I don't know, actually, frankly speaking, whether price has gone up or down of diesel. But some damn fool has put it out. I have protested to Twitter. I've sent they don't them, care. They don't care. I've sent them a legal notice that you, you know, these accounts are there in my name and they use such filthy and abusive language. I don't know. And I get uh, reprimanded by my friends that use No, but the Twitter, when you complain to Twitter, it goes into another software where it just finds if there are particular words or not and usually your complaint is just rejected, that it, it fits in with our social policy. Absolutely. So this perversion of discourse and, and, uh, and now the skillful use of it by godmen as well as political godmen equally fake and equally dangerous. Going into your discussion about Barber Calvary's experiments on... Um, haunted houses, is it? Haunted houses as well as on uh, people with angina who uh, were given placebo ah, and uh, people who were, you know, they were told that they were going to get um, surgery done and actually in reality nothing was done and compared to the people who actually got surgery who had, who had heart problems, angina, they did equally well. Now um, this would make surgeons such as my husband extremely nervous and I give you two anecdotal experiences. First let me ask you the question, what is the difference between a placebo and a guru's blessing? Because if a placebo can make a patient better as we have seen, it does happen. And a guru's blessing, what is the difference? No, 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 no difference. And actually, uh, that is why the guru's uh, blessing may have actually a great... Uh, we must not just always scoff at it. Because he is doing the work of a therapist, of a placebo. He is triggering in our mind those reactions which will help heal me of that particular problem. So I'm not therefore under dismissing that thing. Uh, but maybe all blessings are of placebos. So don't yes. think that there is a real power in the guru. The real power maybe is in, in you. Yes. In your, not that he has power, but in my belief that he has that power, which cures me. That's the difference. Now, two anecdotal experiences that we've had um, with friends. Uh, this friend of ours who had cancer and he was being treated with chemotherapy 
and he went to one of these new age gurus and uh, Naresh, my husband's cardiac surgeon, it does not discourage any other holistic healing of any kind. He believes that if Reiki is helping you, do Reiki. If you go into Guru, it's fine. It never discourages it. But this Guru told our friend that you have no cancer, you're clean. Stop all chemotherapy. The man stopped getting the therapy. He thought he was clean. He believed he was healed. And he came back to Delhi. He had gone to Goa. He came back to Delhi. And when Naresh saw him, he said, you really need to get chemotherapy done. And there was a, a British doctor visiting who's an expert on that particular cancer that this man had. And he went to see him and he said, it's too late now. He was in the hospital then. It's too late now. He could have been cured. There was no reason. If he had not stopped the chemo, he could have been cured. Another friend of mine with the same guru, she was in school with me. She went to this same guru who told her again, you're clean, you have no cancer. So she got no treatment at all and she died. So that is very important. Therefore, we should, uh, I have tried to emphasize a lot in this that please, this is not an argument for not taking the regular medical treatments at all. These are just examples. For instance, in brain surgery, where the, these um, wires are put to stimulate a particular part of the brain so as to it will generate more, produce more uh, dopamine, for instance, for Parkinson's patients. And then or stem cells are put in there and half the patients are told that yes, stem cells have been put in and the other half, are put, uh, to, uh, the, the surgery is done. The wires are inserted, but the stem cells are not put in. And it seems that they do as well or as poorly. But that was a and tragic story about the stem cell yes, failure. And that the, uh, actually the persons who did better, the ones who believed that stem cells had been put into them, and the difference was not between whether they had been put in or not put in, but whether you believed. So in that sense, it is that the mind is supplementing the actual therapy. That is, that is no argument at all to say, don't go in for actual therapy. Because after all, medical science is also, uh, it's the dis uh, these discoveries have prolonged our lifespan and so on. So one is not to decry that at all. It's certainly not an argument that when a surgeon says, you must have surgery, I say, you know, my guru says, don't have it. That happens. That happens. That is a completely great misuse of the power of the guru. But what the surgeon, the lesson for the surgeon may be that you can also, as, your, as Naresh does, that if the, a person says, Kesha, I also want to do X or Y, get the blessings of X or Y, and that why helped. Not? Why not? That it can actually have a, a good effect. As we know, for instance, doctors who it is said have a better bedside manner, patients respond much better to them than to doctors who will just come in and the assistants will write something and they will go away. Well, you know, once a Reiki master came to Naresh and said he wants to do Reiki on patients after heart surgery. So Naresh said, listen, if you're going to do it, I want to do a studied experiment. It can't be just a blind that you come and you do it and you leave. So he said, we'll do one set of patients where you give them Reiki. One set of patients where they don't get Reiki, but they believe they're getting Reiki and one set of patients who don't get anything at all. First, he threw a big fit. He said, I'm not, uh, you're questioning my 
you don't believe. And they said, look, I'm a scientist. I'm not going to do this without doing it scientifically. So they did it. And what the end result was that the patients who got Reiki did much better, got recovered faster. The patients who thought they were getting Reiki had the same results as the ones who actually got Reiki. Exactly, yes. But the ones who got nothing had a slower recovery. Yes, precisely. That documents the point exactly. that shows the power of the mind to help the body heal itself, which is what we should not discount. Also, the argument is always given that how many, how can how, so many thousands be wrong? Because we have mob, mobs following all these gurus. And really, you begin, to, you begin to wonder that why are people not more protective of themselves? Yes, and uh, that is partly uh, herd mentality, partly the environment of the Sangat, uh, that if you doubt, then you are, it is your failing, not the Guru's failing and so on. And it is that, that despair is universal, therefore people are looking in herds uh, for some solace or some um, help. It's also the marketing techniques of these. Just superb. Uh, the, uh, but there's a line in Vaishnav Janata which says, uh, Sakal Tirat uh, Tan Manre. All pilgrimages are within you. So isn't it, isn't it just uh, a false promise and, and bringing solace when it's really not real? Well, and you look at all these temples where people go called, put their jewelry uh, down, uh, cut their hair, they're making yeah. money with sending the hair to Spain. Japan to make wigs. Hmm. They're billionaires and people, poor people are giving their last thing kid Mujhe apni mannat. So, uh, and so um, it is obviously a, a, what is called not so much false but a, a white lie, a harmless lie, but may, which may benefit you or not benefit you. But the point is, the, in India we have to be conscious of this fact, not only of the power of the mind, because in the West the power of the mind is being studied exactly as Naresh is studying it with three control groups. Mm -hmm. But in, in our case, uh, we hear of an anecdote, Madhu told me this, who, to, who heard it from Naresh, who heard it from somebody, and we insist that that is true. And uh, that is what is to be guarded against. And also not to reject conventional therapies on, the, on account of some rumored miracle of miraculous powers. But you've given powers. a checklist at the end of the book ah. on what to watch out for, for yes. with these gurus. And you know, in, in Buddhism and in our sannyas tradition, it was that the follower must judge the guru and the guru for must... For 12 years. 12 years. 12 years of examination and of thinking and of assessing, in the, if I believe you are that power, I must think about it for 12 years. Or before accepting him. Before accepting him. Or before Accepting in India means total surrender and total blocking out of rationality. That is what is wrong. You wrote, uh, as anyone who has entered the meditative stream knows, at first all sorts of thoughts and emotions arise in the mind and all sorts of experiences erupt. If one perseveres, and the saints certainly did for years and years, a total calm comes to pervade. A vast calm to the point of unchanging ocean is all that remains.
Why is it that most teachers of meditation, particularly now, neglect to mention that meditation is an accumulative experience? That what you, how you start your meditation, say, this week, and what your meditation is next year, if you're doing it every day, is an accumulation, your experience now is an accumulation of your, all the meditations that you did. And people, of course, want instant nirvana, instant moksha, as that lady in your book launch asked the Dalai Lama, that what do I need to do to in get addition. moksha? Hmm. And he gave a, an, an answer, but she wasn't satisfied. And she asked again, what do I need to do to get moksha? So after the thing, when we were walking out, I asked her, I said, what did you want him to tell you? Did you want him to tell you some rituals? Or some kibgaribon ko daan de do? Because that gives you instant, instant moksha. She said, yes. So she was looking for an instant, whereas these states of moksha or nirvana are long journeys. Of course, in the case of Sri Ramakrishna, 12 years of unimaginable austerities, of unimaginable uh, withdrawal yeah. into oneself. I mean, it's, it's frightening when you read what he did to himself. Yes, and uh, uh, Ravan Maharishi also, three and a half years of, um, he's in a basement and people are, uh, urchins are throwing stones at him. He's Insects crawling all over. All over. So that is immersion. But I think there was a point to that question about what I think she said, in addition to meditation, should we be doing other things also? And generally speaking, the um, Dalai Lama's attitude would be, yes, lead a good life. With compassion. Compassion. There's a wonderful sentence of his. And if you want to be truly selfish, help someone. Beautiful sentence. And I have added a footnote to that in my previous book saying that if you want to be truly selfish, help someone who cannot do anything for you in return. Because if you do something for a prime minister and he does nothing for you, you say, yeah, look, I have helped him for three four years, You can but, say that. But in case it is for your child or for somebody else's child who is completely handicapped, he can't do anything for you. Or you do something anonymously, charity which is anonymous. And therefore you cannot, by definition, expect anyone else to do something in gratitude to you. And that's a much purer form, a much, much more therapeutic, therapeutic form. Is there a, a touch of narcissism in of being so involved in the self, with a capital S, of looking so aggressively for happiness? Most people are just trying to survive, uh, put food on the table, get their kids to school. And in doing these simple things, there is happiness. There's hardly any time for the average person to go searching deeply, immerse themselves. And uh, in your book, there, there are these issues of either you're a householder, and if you're a householder, you cannot uh, be on this journey. So. Do you think it is possible for the ordinary, average person to still take the advantage, use the advantages of meditation and go on a journey simultaneously when life in India is so tough? Yes. Actually, in both Sri Ramakrishna Paravans, for the monks, uh, Sri Ramakrishna would say, yes, no amount of worldliness will do. 
you know, that in a, uh, in a thread, when you are putting it into the needle, if there's a little sliver that is out, the thread will not go in. So he said even a little bit of worldliness will not go in. But for the general public, he said, yes, you continue to be a householder. In Sri Raman's case, he actually prohibits somebody who says, I want to take sannyas like you. So he said, no, you have family responsibilities, do it there. This is then an excuse. You are invoking an excuse for not doing what you can do here and now. So do that. Don't worry about sannyas and so on. So um, they were, they actually liberalized our tradition, both of them, by saying, yes, householders can also do something. But in the case of, uh, if the person is too worldly, uh, Ramakrishna would stress the opposite, as in the case he, in, when he's talking about... Devendra Tagore, yes. <laughs> he didn't seem to like him at all. Well, yes, he saw through. Um, why is it happy to be detached, unaffected by but it's just one point. You had used the word whether uh, their immersion in the self was narcissism. Actually speaking, I don't think so, because their first point was of the erosion of their own egos, to an extent to which we cannot imagine. I mean, there's an uh, eyewitness account by a devotee of one of the followers around uh, Sri Ramakrishna. At the time, his hair were long, and he was so humble, he will clean, he's the priest in the temple. He cleans the toilets. With, with the, his hair? Yes, with his hair. Similarly, Sri Ramana describes the joy he felt in begging for food. It is to that extent to which they had erased their egos. So Nazism and their state is completely a different state. Uh, I was going to ask you, why is it happy to be uh, why is it better to be happy, detached, unaffected by the tragedies and pain around you? Isn't life more full and rich when you feel the pain of others? Well, actually, they felt the pain of others. Both of them were very sensitive. There are all these accounts of, you know, a horse being hit and Ramakrishna is feeling the thing. Somebody else is doing something on the river and he is feeling it. So, so sensitive had their bodies and minds become. And uh, Sri Raman is uh, reclining in the hall in which he used to be, and somebody outside shouts, snake, 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 and they start, somebody with a lati starts hitting the snake. And Ram, uh, Sri Ramana is so upset, saying that if only somebody beat this fellow the same way as he's beating the snake, then he would know. So it is not that they did not feel the thing. But they, uh, some, they were also removed from that pain in a sense. A mother's pain at the death of her son. The remarks of Sri Raman almost seem uh, so detached as to be cruel, as to be heartless. That is my question. That why, why do people, an average person, would rather block off somebody else's somebody who's debilitated or physical condition or extreme poverty, there's a blocking off because it, they, there is a reaction that uh, it'll affect you, it'll make you um, 
suffer. I think that suffering is good, isn't it? If you suffer with the other person in your in your mind, if you read the newspaper and you read all these terrible stories, and if you actually start crying when you read, isn't that good to to be able to have your feeling function intact? But uh, they would not at all um, discourage that. They would say, yes, that's a mark of the compassion growing within you. So they are, uh, this is a very subtle point. Uh, point about the difference between detachment and indifference. They are not indifference to the pain of others. In fact, that's the whole, the whole purpose of their teaching is to get you away from that suffering, which envelops you. But they feel that the cures which we people are latching onto are ones which will not give us a lasting relief from that daily suffering. So they are prescribing a cure which they think will be a foundational cure and which will relieve us of day-to-day -day sufferings, etc. But or, or not, or not relieve us, which will equip us better to deal with day-to-day -day sufferings, etc. Arun, as a follow-up, uh, there seems to be this panic about escaping from suffering. What if you just accept life is suffering and you just deal with it? That's Everyone suffers. Mm -hmm. There's no one who goes through life in complete bliss. Some small, some huge tragedies. But within that, if there is an acceptance of it, isn't it simply easier instead of searching to put band-aids on it and be happy? Oh, that's, that's one of their teachings. And that actually, that you see, they say there are two, three levels of suffering. One is a primary cause. And Adit has brain injury. And the Buddha would certainly say that I can't do anything about the brain injury. For that, you go to the neurosurgeon, if he can do anything. But you have built up a seven-story structure on it. Or those evil people, they are prospering. It is that seven-story structure which I will help you dismantle. Because that is a, 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 a cumulative stories you have built up by, the mind has built up. So let us start by dismantling those. Not that you deny suffering, not that you resign to it and say, oh, I can't do anything. No, you must do maximum effort. But also understand the nature and uh, the nature of that suffering how you can put that suffering to use. It's a wonderful sentence, I think, Solzhenitsyn quotes in one of his books, a Russian proverb, that when difficulties come your way, put them to work. Grist for the mill. Yes. For, and in our, in our instance, it would be, put them to work for your internal healing or improvement of the mind and so on. You've written that from this, the Maharishi, he advances the proposition that nothing we perceive or experience during our waking state is any different. It is not any more real, real than what we experience or perceive during a dream. To those, in another passage, to those who do not know and to those who do, the world is real. And to those who do not know, reality is bounded by the world. While to those who know, reality shines formless as the ground of the world. Such is the difference between them. And in the same, on the same subject, the world is not entirely what we experience. With our senses, is also evident. It is an illusion. 
It is not as if the world is not there at all, but that is not what it seems to our sentence. So we come back to really Maya. What you see isn't, what you don't see is. Uh, well, yes and no. You see, first, uh, the first point is, of course, the world is not just what we see. I don't see atoms. I don't see the cancer cell, but it is there. So, uh, so the first point is that our senses do not reveal all levels of reality. That is true. Sometimes, as in a visual illusion or in an auditory illusion, uh, it can be that I see something which is not there at all. It's just an illusion. There can even be a delusion that is uh, like a hallucination. Yeah. There's a music going on outside which I hear, which is actually not going on. So there are many aspects of that statement which are true. But I think the, a good point made in the book, which I have not seen elsewhere, is that this statement, this insistence of uh, Raman Maharishi that the world is unreal. I have said that there are two points to this that the word unreal does not seem to convey what he has in mind. And that is, that what you are perceiving at the moment is inconsequential. Not that it is unreal. After all, they were eating food. If they were unreal, why would they eat food? Why would they give discourses to people who are not there? Why would she <laughs> go around a hill all the time? Uh, you know, it is a very long journey. Uh, uh, and uh, when he has sciatica, he will do that if, if the hill is not there. So in what sense did he mean that it was, that everything is unreal? I came to the conclusion, there's a passage in one of the uh, devotees' diary and the letters she used to write. Ramana says that I say it is unreal because people believe this is all that is there in reality. And so, it's transitory. So, uh, so he said, it is like a teaching device. I said, yes, she's funny, focus karo, is par karo. So it is in that sense that the word, word unreal seems to be justified. He's only using it to persuade persons who are so totally immersed in the world. That you are fo focusing on the wrong thing. Focus on that. Uh, Arun, our viewers would be very disappointed if I don't ask you any question about the political situation. So, we are now at a, I think, at a cusp where the economy is a big issue and you are an economist. What direction do you see India going in terms of the economy particularly? Because there is huge concern about unemployment. Unemployment, of course, there is absolutely a great concern. And the reason for that is that the government has not been able to, has not adopted the policies that were required to spur private investment. Investment is just not taking place. In fact, many of the persons who could invest in India, Indians, are taking, are setting up offices in Dubai or Singapore, because And whether it is bank reform or it is a less extortionist and a less um, opaque income tax or enforcement directorate uh, departments. None of those reforms that were required for stimulating investment have been done. There's a lot of headline management, 
but the reforms actually are not there. See, what, what the characteristic of this government, government has become an event management company. <laughs> that, you know, every week there is some big event, and we think that that problem has been attended to. You just see, as the, uh, this point about uh, bad loans crippling the banks is a point that has now been made for four, five years, that this is growing, this is growing, this is growing. I personally made it to the Prime Minister in 2013, and uh, what steps can be taken? Sages of the banking system like Mr. Vagul have been alerting everybody to it. Credit Suisse has produced report after report on this, but nothing has been done. Every time it's a meeting and every time it's a big heading in economic times, almost like a North, North Korean paper. <laughs> this is a phrase used by a foreign journalist to me the other day. Ab meeting ho gaya, ab sab kuch ho well, uh, a bunch of journalists were invited into a series of meetings uh, last week. Uh, first the web, uh, internet journalists, and then there was the broadcast journalists, and then the print. And I was invited to the web and uh, Piyush Goyal gave a big presentation for one hour about all their accomplishments. And after that, we were sitting around at dinner and he came and he started talking again about all their accomplishments. And then finally, he asked the journalists who were sitting there, that what do you see as the problems? And I must say, the journalists were not intimidated, were not in the least bit impressed, and simply said, your biggest problem is jobs. I would even have said credibility. <laughs> well, but but I think jobs is one, investment is another. And, and then we got a story like a bit of a Kalavati story that one woman went and bought one sewing machine and she rented it out to three other women and with time sharing it on hours, they were using the machine round the clock and they made money, then they bought another machine. I mean, it is a bit of a fantasy because young, young men and women who come from poor families who have borrowed and begged to get their tuition paid for their education, they don't have capital to start any kind of business. They need jobs. And this whole, uh, actually, the, the new mantra is, we can't provide jobs, you should do entrepreneurship. So, uh, on that also, there'll be a celebration, there'll be an event, and a scheme is launched, and 10,000 crores are allotted to it. And the propaganda surrounding it is, as if those 10,000 crores have actually been spent in this case, in, uh, in setting up Dalits as entrepreneurs. And the, I think Indian Express or uh, Business Standard did a story the, just two, three weeks ago. Do you know how many Dalit entrepreneurs have been helped to start up businesses? Four. Hmm. And out of those 10,000 crores, probably one or two crores have been spent. Magar, but you will miss the allotment for thinking that I disperse So the scale of, um, uh, of uh, exaggeration is Gobelsian. But do you think there's an un unawareness of the, on what is on the ground or there's a deliberate fluffing off? Uh, both. Deliberate fluffing off, headline management, keep feeding the journalists something, a positive story. And, they, and be fully confident that they will not go and in check the facts. That is one. And the second thing is that, yes, they are living in a very small echo chamber. And they are not, they become deaf, without a doubt. 
and they are not seeing the real distress in small enterprises, in medium scale enterprises, in construction sector, and the indices just don't add up to this seven and a half percent growth. Manufacturing is down, exports were down for such a long time. I was actually uh, told yesterday that the reality is that it's four percent. Yes, could be. And the good indication of that also, in that, that when the government switched to a new way of estimating the GDP, they said within two, three months we will give you the revised figures of the earlier series. Three years, two and a half years have gone by. No revised series of the earlier thing. Maybe at this, in this method of calculation, we were always growing at 7%. Or maybe we are today growing at four and a half, five percent, exactly like the way we were doing earlier. And the big sectors are in such great distress. They are the great employers, textiles, and some marginal improvement now. Construction. You just see telecom uh, tomorrow. There have been firings. Thousands of people have been yes, fired in, in IT, telecom. In IT. Mahindra has fired 500 people. Uh, um, IT. DLF, somebody said, I don't know the figure, but somebody said uh, to me that DLF has fired 75,000 people connected directly or indirectly with the single company in real estate and construction. So, even the reforms that are announced, you said Piyush Goel, um, these reforms of actually Uday scheme or some such scheme, in which they have just kicked the can three years down the line. They have not solved the problem. And it is, I th uh, maybe people can be, uh, see these people think people, all the people, uh, no, it is said that you can't fool all the people all the time. But these people know that it is not necessary. <laughs> you have to only fool 31% of the people for those three weeks of the election campaign. And that's what they are banking it's tragic. on. That's the reality. Today. What do you think of uh, what is happening in journalism today? I mean, the kind of traditional um, questioning, uh, the traditional way of um, asking for evidence for any press releases that are given out. It, journalism's position as it has been over the years uh, has always been of trying to get to the facts more than what the government is trying to put on us. What do you think of what you see that is happening on television channels as well as in print? Actually, I, I absolutely stopped watching television. Just, I mean, it's foolishness to waste time on that. There's no, no facts, it's a, a very few programs like Srinivas and Jan's program. Hype. Hype. Truth versus Hype. Truth versus Hype. There are very few such programs which actually examine a claim. Otherwise, we are just swallowing and vomiting. That's what journalism has become. Or just shouting at each other. Shouting at each other as far as television is concerned. And in the print media, actually it is just government or now company handouts. So this is certainly not worth reading. I mean, might as well read Pravda or Global Times for China. You know, at least you would important to know what the Chinese want us to think. <laughs> <laughs> it is really, uh, it's... Uh, great dereliction of duty and one of the reasons why this has happened this is something many of us may not have anticipated that very large business houses have now entered uh, they have bought up uh, shares and so on in newspapers and in television channels 
और उनकी पूंच इतनी जगह पर दबाई जा सकती है दे हैव इम्पोज एल्फेंसरशिप अनरिटन सेल्फ सेंसरशिप ऑन टू द जर्नलिस्ट एंड दैट विल कॉस्ट एवरीबडी एंड दैट एड्स टू ए मच दो चेम्बर नाउ बिकम्स how can only one story be told even on one particular issue you have to have diverse views or diverse facts even but there's always one version and that's it that because we are the journalists are not doing their homework it's just easy to go to a press conference and type up what the fellow says and you don't even go back to what he said last week so that uh, lack of work in fact and and uh, and and fear that this is a vindictive government therefore if we talk the truth we'll be in trouble the fear of the owners the fear actually of the journalists which is the surprising thing and to me and when we are being watched you know they have these three institutes the national media analytics there's another one they almost housing 2 to 300 people in each institute and in that every journalist reports or writing is labeled neutral positive or negative and then it goes into a software which then tells them how many times say that journalist has been positive how many times they've been negative and how many times they've been neutral and all the television channels are also and these reports are going to the cabinet secretary they're going to all the senior officers and so we are being categorized we are being watched and categorized and by tax with taxpayers money that we are paying to be watched by them for what purpose why should they know whether i'm positive or negative or neutral no, because we what must, business is it of theirs uh, well because that's that's the first step don't think they will stop at watching they are building up kisko theek karna hai that is why there is a fear psychosis right. there is a fear right. and a and genuine they, fear because this and therefore the only answer can be to defy the fear courage doesn't mean being uh, forthright when uh, things are all right when you can when you are certain there won't be reprisals courage and duty performance of duty of uh, our profession means precisely that you will keep telling the truth in spite of the fact that you know they are watching it's very difficult arun for It young is. men yeah. who are trying to put bread on the table get their kids to school and it's very difficult because you're just trying to survive and you know that if you do anything where the boss tells you you can't write about this this story could they kill stories it's it's a real big dilemma for journalists yes, it's a no big because no difficulty the owners and the and who and the editors who are catering to the owners set out a line and i look at these and they and the journalists who have walked out under these circumstances they disappear nobody knows where they went this right. there will now be a large enough posse of journalists who would have had to leave this profession and therefore i believe that alternate means of communication like you are doing without channel are the future many people should now think of ways of how to collect information and how to disseminate information outside what is known as the media and i mean by dissemination also because it will be so easy for them tomorrow just to switch off a channel or switch off a newspaper so we must find ways by which you can you can get around 
uh, the That's technology. That's why news laundry doesn't take advertising because of the fear of pressure yes, could from be. anyone. That, that so is one, it's crowdfunded. That is one point. But the second point, Madhu, I think we are now in a stage with all this preparatory work having been done with, by the government of categorizing people that actually it'll, they'll just block off the news or, 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 or uh, um, disturb the news laundry website. And after five, six tries, the, the, the viewer will not even look at it. So we must now devise methods to get around their technologies. After all, the Chinese citizens are, have devised ways to get around a much more powerful censorial operation by the Chinese government, a very much more powerful and efficient state than ours. So we must find ways. I've been, uh, I think we should get to know these hackers, we should get to know other people who, ca who know how to get things past uh, government blocks. Because that is, uh, you can be sure that within a few years, it will be almost impossible to get the facts out, or to get facts and to get them out and put them out through because conventional ways. Has, has uh, propaganda has fear, technology, blocking technology, all How would you compare it to the time during Mrs. Gandhi's emergency? See, there's Only in journalism, not on the other things. Well, uh, yes and no. I think in journalism, she tried to make an example of the Indian Express by taking it mm. over. She's very obvious about it. This is very subtle. This is very subtle. That is one point. But the second difficult, I think there's a very big difference. People keep saying, oh, it's the emergency type of situation. No, because Mrs. Gandhi had a set of very strong civil servants around her. This is a wonderful uh, essay by Jairam Ramesh on, uh, it's called Mr. P. N. Haksar and the Making of Indira Gandhi. Mm. Haksar, Mr. B. K. Nehru, Mr. L. K. Jha, Mr. Dharam Veera, all these persons at that time were men of substance. And Mrs. Gandhi did not throw them away, she would listen to them. Today, you just don't have that. The erosion which is so obvious of persons in political life, which we see every day. But the same sort of erosion has taken place in the caliber of the civil service and I'm afraid in the caliber of judges. So, I mean, you just see this man who's given this judgment yesterday on, on the peacocks. Cows, peacocks, cows and that Justice Karnan, what kinds of things he's doing. But till yesterday, he was deciding cases. That is what is so frightening. frightening yes. But he was deciding, that's the condition now of many parts of the judiciary. And similarly of the civil service. They have just become, civil service means the servants of civil society. But these are just very civil servants. <laughs> that's what they think their role is. So I think, and therefore, it is a very dangerous situation and dangerous for, for all of us as citizens or as journalists, but also dangerous for the country in one way. Because now I feel that this stage is set perfectly for very big blunders. Because there is no feedback. There is no sturdy, independent advice. Everything depends upon the revelation received at night by the Prime Minister. The government by ilham. So what is the consequence? Koi idea do to demonetization. 
But supposing the same scale of blunder had occurred on foreign policy or national security policy. It's frightening. Yes. But the stage is set because nobody will talk back. A, a good contrast, I think, Mrs. Gandhi, and, and during the, after all, 10 million Bangladeshis had taken refuge in India. She could have said, go in now, just now. And as uh, Field Marshal Manikshaw revealed, that she uh, was uh, you know, pressing for early uh, operations and he said, no, I will require this much time to prepare and that time was allowed. I am not sure that you would either have persons of Manikshaw's sturdiness. Who would say that. Say that or a government which would listen. Because actually speaking, there is no government. There's one man with one legitimizer and one instrument. That's all. So, uh, yes, it is a very um, precari precarious moment. Thank you very much, Arun. Thank you. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.